be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 10th overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 9, often known, depending where you look, as Season 2, Episode 2, Episode 10, or what the German regionalization team named Coma. I'm your host, John. For a bit of bureau business, um, I have been out and about on other podcasts here and there. Uh, We've got... uh, from back on April 1st, I did an appearance with uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped Guys to do an actual uh, look into the Lost pilot. And um, I think that would have made a really nice series if it wasn't an April Fool's joke, but we did it the right way. And uh, it was fun digging into a show that I still haven't, uh, I you know, I, I haven't taken my trip to the island all the way through yet. And, uh, you know, one day maybe. But for now, you just get a little bit of a taste test with uh, Ben and Brian and uh, Ben's son, Seth, on um, Lost Unhatched. (laughs) And yeah, Twin Peaks Unwrapped from April. And a little bit more recently, um, I have been uh, invited on to Counter Esperanto to discuss some of their season three uh, material. They've they've had uh, John Thorne and Rob King so far, and um, then there's me and a few other guests. And uh, between all of us, we're gonna cover the um, the wider the wider theories and concepts in uh, season three. So if you want to get a taste test of what Blue Rose Task Force is gonna be all about in about maybe <laughs> sometime around a year from now, um, that's that's a good place to go and. Uh, you know, thanks again to Ben and Brian and Jubal and Carl for the invites. Now, as far as today goes, in episode nine, Cooper and Albert discuss Buddhism, case particulars, Cooper's health, and Win Merle, while backed by a barbershop quartet at the Great Northern. Donna delivers meals on wheels to Mrs. Tremont and her budding magician grandson. Cooper and Harry send Ronette into full panic by showing her drawings, and Ben and Jerry discuss the merits of burning ledgers. The log lady's log asks the major to deliver the message. Andy confronts Lucy about likely infidelity. Hank's revealed as a heel-turned bookhouse boy. And Ben tells the lawman that Audrey is missing before he and Jerry try to save their deal with the Icelanders, despite Leland's manic interference, which is sidelined when he proves he's seen this man. 
Shelly learns Leo's current health status. Lucy gets a call from a mystery person. Audrey gets information from Kinky Emery at One-Eyed Jacks. Bobby convinces Shelly to bring Leo home for the disability checks. James, Donna, and Maddie sing a song. Bob climbs over a couch. And the Major shares a space message with Cooper, which possibly unlocks Cooper's dream that involves an owl superimposed over Bob's face. But the dream is interrupted by Audrey, who calls Cooper from One-Eyed Jacks before Blackie hangs up the call and shows just how much trouble Audrey is in. Now, having seen all of Twin Peaks up to this point and reading all the books and whatever else you want to throw into the mix, what kind of questions do we have about this episode now? What I have, and there's four of them, how does Cooper's intuition and focus on that intuition bring him closer to Lodge Space? How does communication illustrate the threshold between physical and supernatural? How is Lodge Space influencing the town of Twin Peaks? And when and how is Bob making himself be seen? And before we go in all of that, we are going to take a look at the production history. So the episode's written by Harley Payton and directed by David Lynch, and this is the only time they're going to be paired like this. So it's I I find this one particularly nice for that point of view, because, um, I mean, if nothing else, by the end of the run, there's a bit of a divide between them, let's say. Um you know, Peyton gets a little uh, tetchy about things like, you know, Cole kissing Shelly, uh, being mad about rewriting some of the episode 29 stuff, um, you know, just just being on different paths, basically. It's like um, Peyton ended up siding more with Frost as the show went on and, um, you know, Engels sided more on the Lynch side of things. And, uh, you know, it's Engels that... Um, that Lynch recruits for Firewalk with me when when Frost decides to not be involved in it. But you know, right here we've got Peyton and Lynch, you know, having a pretty solid relationship as far as I can tell. And the episode is great. Um, you know, one thing in particular, it's like, you know, Peyton isn't petty. He doesn't uh he doesn't complain, you know, when when Spielberg isn't able to direct the first episode because Lynch says, you know what, I want to direct it. Um, you know, mostly Mostly, uh, Peyton's thoughts on that is, um, you know, the time cover, the uh, all the attention, you know, the 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 media saying, you know, like you know, Lynch's Twin Peaks, you know, like completely ignoring the fact that everybody else was working on it a lot more in season one when Lynch was mostly off working on his own thing. You know, he he sees Lynch seeing getting all this credit, and then you know, you know, Peyton's quote from Reflections by Brad Dukes, you know. He was really going to get in there and do the work. And, you know, he, he really likes uh, Lynch's work ethic and the fact that, you know, it's like he's getting all this credit, but now he needs to deserve that credit by working really hard at the beginning of season two. The script itself was completed on July 18th of 90, and um, it's the first script that Peyton wrote after he was... Uh, after he became executive producer, but before he became the de facto showrunner, after all the uh, after all the um, the bits of episode sixteen was completed, and um, for my money, Peyton is the Albert writer. So you know, it's it's always a joy listening to this stuff, and it sounds like pretty much everything that Albert says at the beginning of this episode came straight from Peyton. Now, there's a couple Lynch specific things here: um, the barbershop quartet nod that. Um, the reason why that's in there is because he really liked Leslie Lincoln Gladder's um, 
conventions convention like where the great northern has something different every single episode you know he definitely wanted to play in that sandbox with all the other directors because he thought that was great as far as what we get this episode you know there's all this humming and harmony and you know you've got you've got cooper starting out talking about buddhism and you know there's uh, there's definitely a certain harmony afoot with the sounds and everything and it's way different than that bouncing balls cacophony that you're going to get in the uh, in the episode 14 thing when everything is falling apart and we get a murder at the end so um yeah it's it's neat to see how you know, here, here's another way that Lynch uses the soundscape to his advantage. Lynch also installed the magic trick part of the uh, the Tremont scene, but um, talking soundscape some more, just you was another way for Lynch to include songs, and he's he's been doing this pretty regularly. Like you know the the um, the Sherilyn Fenn dancing in the in the double R because you know he and uh, he and Badalamente came up with a new song. And, um, you know, it's like he's always wanting to add music and sounds to it. You know, I mean, the Barbershop Quartet falls into that, too, honestly. But, yeah, he wanted he wanted James Marshall to sing a song. You know, he actually asked him, it's like, can you sing? Can you, I hear you play guitar and you're really good. And, you know, <laughs> you know they, they basically threw the threw together this song. And then it got recorded in a in a key that was a little bit higher, like, you know, James Marshall uh, in Reflections. He says, you know, it's like, but I can't sing in C. And it's like, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> it's, like, it's quite a bit specific situation. You know, who knew? But, yeah, he thought he was going to go in there and um, play the guitar and like do things like that. But it was pretty much already completed between Lynch and, and uh, Angelo. But as far as why the song was included in the first place in the show in the full capacity like it was i think it's because of you know the 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 50s tv shows back in the day when when lynch was growing up you know the the one that i'm going to point at is ricky nelson um you know ozzy and harriet um it's a it's a show that was on from 1952 to 1966 and that was huge back then uh, ricky nelson you know a few years into it you know he wanted to make a television rock and roll debut so on april 10th of 57 uh he's he's in the show in you know on the film set singing and playing drums to i'm walking um it's it's in the Ozzy and Harriet or Ozzy and Harriet episode Ricky the drummer. You know, Lynch was 6 when the show debuted and um this would have actually happened when Lynch was 11. You know, this was uh, Nelson's big springboard into like being like a um a musician and a you know that kind of a teeny bopper too or that um like a what do you call that, you know, like a heartthrob. And um this this made kind of a bomb in the culture at the time so like i think that you know lynch being 11 then and me being a uh, 12 year old twin peak peaks watcher at the time it's like the stuff that you absorb at that age is gonna stick with you and it's gonna influence you for a very long time so i think that why we had a song going on in the set of a show is because that's kind of how they always did it back then. And Lynch is trying to capture that magic. And, you know, of course, we all know his his sound, his need for sound at this point. And uh, yeah, it all it all kind of coincided together. As far as when this show aired, when it was finally complete, um, it aired on October 6th, 1990. It had 14.4 million viewers, which is down from the premiere's 19.1. But um, 
not by a not by a large percentage. It seems like the uh, the the base that's stuck with the season two premiere is um, willing to stick with this show for a while. At this point, it's going to have around this number for a little while, and it's going to drift down. But it won't it won't get under ten until it comes back in January. Yeah, TV Tango says that this was led into by China Beach. Um, and that had lower ratings than its own lead in the young writers and it had a lower number than twin peaks so peaks really did bring its own audience to this and um yeah though though in my house um (laughs) it was most likely followed by empty nest because we watch those kind of shows most of the time as a family uh on a different network you know then we watch twin peaks and then because i think we're in the central time zone they move things around a lot because i know that show was followed by the young writers for a very long time that was an interesting show too but you know not not nearly as memorable as twin peaks was and I will put in my uh, my apologies to China Beach because I know it's a fantastic show. And um, I'm pretty confident that Shirley's Maddie would have had a lot of conf- uh, had a had a lot of competition for crush status if I'd known about Dana Delaney back then. But I don't know if my preteen self could have handled that then anyway, because I kind of I, I was a little bit too young for Cheryl and Fenn's draw, too. I don't know. Kind of unnecessary to think about. But I will think about how um, the the Saturday time slot worked. So, yeah, this is the first episode when it's in its normal, natural time slot after it was a Sunday night movie last week. You know, the network, ABC, wasn't comfortable with the middling ratings. It wasn't, um, it wasn't comfortable with the lack of creative control or the lack of ownership on the thing. You know, Lynch and Frost owned the whole thing. So, like, the only thing that um, ABC could get out of this was the money from uh, the uh, the money from advertisers and ratings and um if it's not getting great numbers you know it's like yeah put it on saturday you know rather than canceling it and having it being shown on the upstar fox network who definitely wanted to get it and um you know it kind of matches up with why the x-files was given a chance on fox even though it had meddling ratings for the first couple seasons um you know it's like they wanted their twin peaks this whole time and they finally thought they had one uh so who knows how that worked on the business side for fox but uh Another connection that I kind of feel like, you know, you pay strict attention to those kind of things. As far as how the Twin Peaks side thought about the Saturday uh, time slot, we've got Robert Engels and Mark Frost talking about it in Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes by Mark Altman back in 1990. Um, And, you know, I think there was a little bit of frustration coming out, but also a little bit of uh, propaganda on Frost's side. And uh, for Engels, he says... I feel people will come to trust that hour on Saturday and what it's going to be. It's just a weird thing. You can't look at the ratings and tell who's watching. We're going to keep working as hard as we can and say, here it is. Hope you guys like this. There's always that reaction that we're so quirky or this or the people will think we're doing weird things just to be weird. And we really don't. My feeling is there's nothing we can do about the ratings as long as we're not saying we're so hip and making fun of the audience. 
So, you know, we got that sort of like non-answer. <laughs> and then we've got Frost saying, I think it was actually a very good idea. Everybody says Saturday night is a wasteland and that nobody's home watching television. Yet the research all indicates there are millions of people home watching cable and renting movies. I know my generation is getting too tired to go out on Saturday nights because we're all having babies and sleeping in and getting kind of lazy. So there's no rule that says people can't watch television on Saturdays. It wasn't that long ago that Saturday was the night of Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family and Bob Newhart. And that was the most watched night in, of the week. You know, Frost was on to something. I mean, he did the math. He understood the situation, but... I also kind of think, you know, he, he knew that the times had changed and he was trying to like maybe capture something there. And I mean, maybe he was on to something because the, the leader in this exact time slot against Twin Peaks was held by Carol and Company, which was basically a reboot of Carol Burnett doing her her skit thing with her usuals, you know, um, Tim Conway and all them. Yeah, I mean, the throwback to that era of TV is the one that could get the ratings that night. And even then, it honestly wasn't that much. But um, yeah, it's it was it was interesting to put those two things up against each other. Yeah. And, and again, I'll say that, you know, being on Saturday night was great because for me, you know, it's like I was a little too young to be working. I was a little bit too young to be hanging out with a ton of people. So I was kind of at the mercy of the TV anyway. And um, yeah, I mean, having something like this to get you know, to, to infiltrate my brain was, was a really good, uh, creative benefit, even though it was scaring the hell out of me. So anyway, we've looked at the show from how it was made and how it was, um, how it was initially embraced by folks. Um, now we're going to look at the log lady intro that happened in 1993 on the Bravo network back when Bravo was kind of like the independent film channel. And, um, it's um, Lynch's final response after, you know, thinking this is going to be it. As above, so below. The human being finds himself or herself in the middle. There is as much space outside the human proportionately as inside. Stars, moons, and planets remind us of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Is there a bigger being walking with all the stars within? Does our thinking affect what goes on outside us and what goes on inside us? I think it does. Where does creamed corn figure into the workings of the universe? What really is creamed corn? Is it a symbol for something else? So there's a lot in here. Um, starting out with as above, so below, it's, I mean, it, it seems pretty, uh, pretty straightforward that it's, you know, the internal um, and the external and you know i mean the the tv show up to this point has done this thing where you know it portrays the internal thoughts externally in in like a physical way the interior space especially according to lynch is exactly the same as exterior reality i mean in twin peaks definitely especially in season three and you know they're both seen as equally important and equally real as far as, you know, human beings being in the middle, um, it's between these two states, the internal and the external. It's like we exist in both uh, both areas at the same time. I mean, I know he didn't name the episode coma, but um, the in-between state in this in this episode in particular is, I mean, you've got Ronette 
and Leo, both in this particular um, in, in this particular situation where they're between awake and, um, you know, dead, pretty much. This concept really matches with my take on how season three is viewed as this neutral frequency between a positive and negative frequency. You know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I, I didn't look at the Log Lady introductions before watching season three. So, like, this is my first time through really digging into them. So, like, it's interesting to see that Lynch is kind of talking about these concepts here that I've been reverse engineering for a while. So it's kind of neat. And, you know, I mean... As a, as a kid, you know, like when I was, um, you know, really young, I, I remember daydreaming about, you know, like how the, how the cells and planets and, you know, like, you know, the, the nucleus and the sun, you know, it's like, we're all orbiting like, uh, neutrons and electrons. You know, it's like, I've, I've always kind of wondered if we were this very small molecule on something huge that we just can't see because we're too small to see it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so it's it's neat that you know I'm I'm sort of I, I've sort of always been on this wavelength. It's not just Twin Peaks that did this to me. <laughs> you know, it really matches up with Twin Peaks just in general because it's like there's always this fractal approach. I know Bobsy over at uh, Diane Podcast was talking about that in particular on the final dossier um, episode, and um, yeah, it's just like all these concepts they they are the same whether it's um, extremely small or super wide spanning um you know all the way up through the unified field um but you know then then we have in here um there's some talks about you know it's like can you influence yourself can you influence the outside yourself and uh, log lady says she thinks she that we can and um you know that that goes into the whole dreamer thing that lynch really attaches to you know it's like does our thinking affect what goes on outside of us um you know I inside ourselves makes a lot of sense because we kind of you know it's like our our thoughts kind of power the body and that changes things of how we process things but changing the outside of ourselves um is a lot more like uh you know the magician that longs to see and dreaming you know being being able to change the dream that you're in and then kind of like how the giant and, and margaret talk uh just in general then there's like this shift you know it's like okay we talked about the business part stuff now we're going to talk about this little extra thing and uh, she brings up cream corn <laughs> and um you know eventually um in um in fire walk with me it's subtitled as pain and sorrow you know it's like the at this point, I think that was already revealed, according to Lynch. But, um, you know, like, how does how does cream corn interact with this fractal style of thoughts? Um, it it does it in the way that, like, it's not separate from it. It's part of it, too. Um, and uh, pain and sorrow is just another emanation. You know, it's it's just like joy and all the happier and um, the happier thoughts, except that it's a lot more on the negative side. It, it, it's the thing that, um, the fear wants. It says to me that like, it's attached to the negative side of things and that the negative side of things is, um, potentially making a push to assert itself in Twin Peaks. All right. So now that we've looked into that, we're going to take a bit of a break and, uh, listen to some of our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. 
Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. And welcome back. It's time to go back into the episode, breaking it down bit by bit. And we're going to go through those questions that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And the first one is, how does Cooper's intuition and focus on that intuition bring him closer to Lodge Space? So first of all, you could say that he's been healing himself overnight or something because Cooper isn't seemingly affected by his gunshot anymore. Um, But, you know, I mean, that that goes more to weekly tv presentation you know it's like viewers weren't expected to pay that much attention to the tiny little details and um you know it's like things that you know the way our time passes it's like we would feel that like intuitively you know after a week he would be doing a lot better so like it doesn't really stick out to us but it would stick out if they stuck to the continuity and then had cooper limping around from a gunshot wound for now through um the end of uh episode 16 arbitrary law you know (laughs) like that would get really old it's like oh my gosh this guy's never healing even though that would have been only two weeks and would have been perfectly natural in the real world you know think about the earplugs that um cooper ordered last um last season you know it's like one week he asks for them and then the next day in continuity he gets them um, so, you know, binging, you notice it, but weekly TV, you wouldn't. It's it's more a respect of the audience uh, real time. Now, as far as the, this episode itself, um, we've got uh, Cooper and Albert talking about Buddhist tradition at the beginning. Um, and, you know, it's like the happy generation, the first generation that came to Tibet and all that. And, uh, you know, Cooper's really into it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Albert's like, you know, it's like, okay, oh, yeah, keep talking. But right now I'm trying to focus on the more immediate problems of our own century right here in Twin Peaks. And um, Dale's response is, Albert, you'd be surprised at the connection between the two. So, you know, like, right off the bat, we get this thing about cycles. Um, You know, it's Lynch's mindset for sure. Um, And it's, you know, we see cycles like this representing themselves over and over um, with Frost in Secret History of Twin Peaks in particular. I mean, if, if you look at it, like just like pure, like what was said just now, it's as simple as this. People with a philosophy that relates to the unified field come to a physical location and over time, its influence changes and permeates everything. You know, it's it's not unlike here at all because, you know, the supernatural may not be exactly aimed at enlightenment, let's say, uh, you know, on the Bob side anyway. Um, this mindset is coming through Lodge Space at Twin Peaks right at this time, and it's changing and permeating everything. So it really does relate to this whole thing, especially since uh, since Ronette and um, Laura have been caught up in this supernatural the the supernatural push through a threshold at the world. And, you know, right after he finishes on this topic, he does mention Ronette. You know, he me- he mentions how, you know, she's, uh, she's going to be shown pictures of Bob, which is, you know, another emanation from the supernatural into our world. And, um, 
it's mentioned, you know, how Ronette's not speaking yet. You know, she's pre-verbal, but, you know, she's plenty reactive. And we're going to go into that a lot later with this whole um, nonverbal communication versus words and what that ends up getting people. You know, after that, we get jokes from uh, from Albert about Jacques, um, you know, having the contents of a whale's stomach, basically. And, um, you know, then Albert has a concern for Cooper, which is interesting to see um you know he's absolutely acerbic but he takes care of his own you know he's ready it seems like you know it's like he wants to protect his people he's he's very tribe when it comes to the blue rose task force types and um it almost seems like he interacts with the physical world as if he's always ready for a fight you know it's like the the darkness is the real world to albert i think you know so he's like a field agent in in this stuff and you know it's like him and his folks are the uh, the positive light shining through and pushing through at all costs and it kind of it kind of goes with his role in um, in part 11 in season three you know he's the guy who stands just outside of the vortex you know it's like he can see the distortion on gordon cole as he's waving his arms looking up into the vortex at that stairwell of woodsman <laughs> and um you know, it's like he knew to grab um, to grab Gordon at that one particular moment by the shoulder and, um, you know, keep keep Cole here instead of getting absorbed by the supernatural. And, um, you know, it's like I, I feel like uh, Albert's place in that kind of kind of helps describe why he's such an asshole to everybody and why he's so mean and not respectful of people that are in the shit with him basically <laughs> you know it's partly efficiency that you know he's so mission oriented but it's also probably like you know who can you trust down here anyway we get other details you know cooper mentions his r missing ring here and it shifts over to Wyndham earl talk and uh, we see jonathan watching over cooper you know that forwards along the josie plot line that'll be dealt with in a little bit um you know, just serial television. You got to seed future things here and there. It's like Hank being the uh, the heel turn bookhouse boy. Uh, things like that will happen. And, you know, they don't have to all completely equate with what we're getting in this episode. But yeah, some stuff we learn here is that the room service waiter actually is a real human being, according to Albert, which to me says that he is absolutely physical rather than like, you know, a possible supernatural emanation or something. But I will talk about Wyndham Earl a tiny bit. Um, you know, Earl is not set in stone yet. You know, there's no story Bible. I'm going to be, uh, there, there's a great quote from somebody that I can't even remember right now, but, you know, it's like they, they really wanted a story Bible made for Twin Peaks and yet nobody ever did it for consistency. So, you know, you get, you get, um, this detail that you know he's retired and um you know th this is this is even before my life my tapes was written by scott frost um you know it's like he the the furthest frost had gotten on that at that point was the tapes that we just did an episode on um you know so so the earl backstory was not really put together and you know also i think um Mark Frost, you know, at the time, you know, he, he's a big Sherlock Holmes fan and he knew that Arthur Conan Doyle would just like make up continuity on the fly and it wouldn't be internally consistent. You know, it would be basically, you know, um, 
details as needed by plot. And, you know, you could just change whatever you need to. And, you know, don't think too hard about that stuff. Think about the story and the characters first. Um, so, you know, you get words like retired, but, you know, that said, you could brush off the retired comment as protecting Earl's dignity from the man, um, you know, the, the man who trained under Earl, um, you know, there, there's still a certain amount of respect for Earl, um, that, you know, they're not going to talk about the fact that both he and Albert knew that, um, he was actually in a mental institution. So. I think, um, in general, it's like the, the only stuff we know is that, um, Earl did something that got him quote unquote retired, even though he had to go into a mental institution and that Cooper didn't know that he had escaped until recently. <clears throat> so the, the gist is this is a dangerous situation and it's just here for future plots that we'll get around to eventually says Twin Peaks writers. After the Great Northern wraps up, the next time we see Cooper is when he and Harry go to question Ronette at the hospital. We'll go into that later for sure. Um, but, you know, Bob awareness has been verified that, you know, somebody else in the world can see it, can see Bob besides Cooper in his dreams. Um, you know, then they head to the sheriff's station. That's where, you know, the Hank heel turn is revealed. Um you know, that that's, you know, thematically it's a reversal. It's a polarity shift for Hank, but you know, I mean, in, in here, it's just a potential storyline thread. Um, <clears throat> but you know, the bigger news is how, um, Ben Horn calls in to talk about how Audrey is missing. And, um, you know, from this point forward, she's the biggest other preoccupation besides figuring out who Bob is. Um, so you know, a quick tangent on Audrey, you know, it's like what we get from her this episode is that she convinces two hospitals, you know, she has like a free roam of inside one-eyed jacks apparently. And she convinces two hospitality girls really weakly in my, in my suggestion. I mean, by my estimation, but you know, that's the speed of plot. You know, you only have so many minutes for a scene, so you just got to do it quick. And these girls end up being like, well, okay, we'll let you do it. Even though they probably wouldn't have in a real world situation. Um, so yeah, um, this is where we get Audrey going in and, um, you know, interrupting Emery's fantasy session. Um, and, you know, she doesn't do it in the sex kitten kind of way. She, like, unplugs the vacuum cord and, like, ties it around his neck. And she gets all, you know, like, pretty pretty lethal about it, honestly. You know, she's, she's more action-y about it. And um, I'm going to read a bit from Harley Payton in uh, Reflections by Brad Dukes. Uh, he says... What happened over the summer was a lot of the actors decided they wanted to make changes to their characters, and Audrey decided she really didn't want to be a sort of fetishized sex object in bobby socks and saddle shoes. She wanted to be more like Catherine Hepburn, and that's the quote, if I remember it. So, you know, here, even though Fenn's got, um, uh, what was it, mono? I can't remember. She was, she was sick for a very long time, which is one of the reasons why she has so few scenes in One-Eyed Jacks and probably why they keep her in there so long. Um, you know, from a practical standpoint, anyway, that's why it was. Um, so, you know, that maybe that's why she couldn't run away because, you know, sure, she's, like, convincing all these girls to help her and everything, but, um, you know, like, why didn't she get out? Um, 
I mean, honestly, though, for Audrey, she was more focused on getting answers. You know, it's like instead of uh, instead of keeping her cards close to her chest, she basically says, um, you know, like while, while she's strangling Emery, she says, I want to know what you know about Emery, uh, what you know, Emery, Perfume Counter, Laura Palmer, Ronette Pulaski and One-Eyed Jacks. And, um, you know, then he'll say, I work for the owner of One-Eyed Jacks. And then she says, who is? And then it repeats twice, which, you know, again, there's that whole repeating of two things or repeating something twice. Um, And, you know, the second time he says it, it's the owner of One-Eyed Jacks. And, you know, know, who is? And then he finally says, your father. And then he says, he runs it all. Um, And, you know, Emery cops to recruiting through the perfume counter. Um, You know, he, he, uh, you know, he, he uh, cops that, um, that Laura slept with Ben. And, you know, Laura did know that Ben was, um, was the boss and all that but um you know it comes out that he slept with her um but that she only made it through one weekend there um due to drug use which kind of matches up with what we hear about in the diary i mean it seems like it went more than just one weekend but you know whatever i mean it's close enough for emory's state of mind at the time (laughs) but you know how she knew that um that Ben was the owner at the time. Um, you know, he, Emery basically says, you know, it's like Laura always got her way. Understand just like you. And, um, it seems like only right now, after all these parallels to Laura, like, you know, she gets her answers that she wanted, but then she realizes finally that she and Laura are on a very similar path right now. And I think now, Audrey figured out, you know, like now she can see just how dangerous it is, you know, why she was left unattended from this point forward. Who can say, you know, it's like she she obviously lets Emery go because he's there in her last scene when she's crying. But like why she didn't escape after this whole thing, I don't know. I mean, the only thing we know is that she's dressed in her normal clothes at that point and that, um, you know, she's crying when when that phone call happens. But, um, honestly, that's, that's for later. Anyway, we've got to, we've got to talk right now about the next Cooper scene, which is when major Briggs shows up. So the first thing to notice about the great Northern scene is that Audrey is still heavily represented in it. Um, we've got Audrey's unread note, you know, and just there on the floor underneath Cooper's bed, um, near his legs. So, you know, she's right there and, um, he just isn't able to notice for some reason. Um, so Cooper's talking on his dictaphone to Diane and he notes about how his former partner, Wyndham Earl has vanished and that Audrey has gone missing. Um, so there's two different kinds of absences that he's talking about right now. Um, And about Audrey, he says, Audrey's absence touches me in ways I could not predict. I find myself thinking not of clues of evidence, but of the content of her smile. So, I mean, okay, season three, things not to say to Diane if you're into her, but, you know, whatever, rewrites, uh, retcons, all that kind of stuff is fair game in season three especially. 
At this point, Briggs will knock on the door, but he's bringing a message that he'll get from an earlier scene at the double R uh, from Margaret's log. Um, so in that scene at the double R, first of all, there's sounds of Andy with the tape and, you know, it's such long extended crinkling, like Andy doesn't even know how to use tape. And it even seems to irritate the major, you know, cause he's looking over like, what is that man doing? It's it can't possibly be that much incompetence. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, the, you know, second of all, this is when, um, the Bob flyer is entering the real world. Um, so, you know, does that possibly facilitate, uh, Margaret being there? Does it facilitate anything else? No, not necessarily, but, you know, thematically now that, um, Bob has entered the world officially, all the, uh, supernaturally aligned characters can also start talking about the supernatural. Um, so at the beginning, of this scene we've got margaret uh being talked to by uh by norma so norma is setting boundaries with with uh margaret about her pitch gum you know don't put it on the counters or the walls or anything and um all margaret does is like swallow her gum and like be silent so there's another nonverbal communication and instead of apologizing or anything she asks ma the major if the shiny objects on his chest make him proud and um briggs all he says back is achievement is its own reward and that satisfies her so they are apparently tuned together on, you know, the importance of the real world <laughs> versus the uh, supernatural concerns. And then he asks if she wants cream, which is a milk product, you know, warm milk for Cooper didn't really bode too well. And of course, milk going to Sarah didn't go too well. And this is Lynch directing. So I'm sure milk is some kind of code word for, um, you know, masking over <laughs> masking over the important things so she um she speaks without words again and she covers her cup you know as if to say no and you know she pulls it closer to her too as she's protecting it from the cream offer <laughs> uh but then she asks if the major knows her log and asks if he can hear it and uh you know he says uh he essentially says no to both of them you know very politely and then she says okay then i'll translate so you know she's just establishing the ground rules for their communication and um her log tells her deliver the message and then she asks do you understand and he says yes ma'am as a matter of fact i do and um you know, after her log's message is understood, she stops acting like there's even a major brig sitting next to her and she just stares ahead. Uh, you know, like her mission is achieved. Now she doesn't have to deal with the uh, non-player characters or something. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, she went back into her own world. Now, next time we see Major Briggs, he's showing up at the Great Northern after after Cooper talks into his dictaphone. So Briggs announces himself by name and he asks asks for an invitation in, um, you know, so he's very polite. He's establishing the rules of transitioning <laughs> between um, <clears throat> between one room to another. Um, and. Um, you know, he, he starts talking to Cooper about, you know, I am not at liberty to reveal the nature of my work. So, you know, that echoes, this is all I am permitted to say that Margaret will say in Log Lady intros and that the giant just said last episode. Um, 
then he goes into particulars about his job. You know, he uh, part of his job entails the maintenance of deep space monitors aimed at galaxies beyond our own. And um, I know in the secret history of Twin Peaks, it's brought up that um, the the race of giants could possibly be from, I think, the star Sirius or the Horsehead Nebula. I can't remember exactly which one right now, but, you know, it's definitely like a far away place from here. Yeah, so like, you know, possible communications from there, you know, it, it, it matches up with uh, typical UFO lore that has made it into Twin Peaks. Briggs says, we routinely receive various communications, space garbage, to decode and examine. Um, and then they look like, uh, they look something like this, radio waves and gibberish. So... Is this thing monitoring the worldly version of dream interpretations? You know, it's like um, the the waves are frequencies, but it's still coming out of our head like, um, oh, my God. I, I can't remember the exact quote about um, Cooper, but, you know, it's like the neurons fire this particular chemical and we don't know why the images happen. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very similar to that as far as I'm concerned. Um, and Briggs mentions Friday morning and Cooper verifies that's around the time I was shot. So, you know, this is lined up with the giant appearance um, from possibly the Horsehead Nebula. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but um, the the words show up. The owls are not what they seem. So this clue that the giant said connects directly with the major's expertise um, none of the other clues show up here, just this one for the major almost. Um, so it's showing up in the major's frequencies of understanding, you know, like why did it particularly go to Cooper at this point? Um, the major points again, he says, Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. And, you know, season three folks understand that it's just Cooper, Cooper. And they leave off that last one, even on that little note that the major puts in his little uh, his little message pod. Um, it it only has like CO and then the paper is cut. So, you know, it's like trim off that third Cooper. And then we will be talking a lot about that particular thing, especially when threes, uh, you know, threes are so heavily done in season three, except for that particular moment. Um, but. Yeah, why are there three Coopers here? Well, I mean, there's three bands of Cooper in the um, in season three. So, like, did that particularly start happening here? Is is um is this Cooper that Briggs is talking to right now a Tulpa emanation? Who knows? Um, but there's a lot of room for all kinds of things. What I tend to think of though is that it's the um, the physical reality, the positive frequency, and the negative frequency all being spoken out loud at the same time. And um, that, like, this moment is, like, one of those confluence points. Um, you know, it's like you'll see stuff like that in season three where Gordon, and in that one really blue, um, that one really blue scene after, uh, at the end of part four, um, when Gordon says, Albert. Albert, Albert, you know, it's like, I, I feel like if you say it three times like that, you're kind of unifying all the frequencies together so that like you're thinking with a more unified brain and, um, 
you can see everything from that point. Or, you know, you can you can go to any particular frequency from that point, almost like a junction point. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, all three cycles there. Um, the ability to understand from that is good. Um, but, you know, is this discussed at all here? No. Cooper just says, my God. But, you know, the next scene... The next scene we get is where it appears that he's beginning to process all this stuff. Um, I kind of feel like this message from Briggs unlocked the dream that Cooper will have uh, next. So this dream sequence, like you're not even quite sure what you're seeing at first. Um, it's exact footage of Cooper with his arm over his eyes and then... Um, you know, the giant waving his, his, um, hand in front of Cooper's face. Um, it, it ends up, it ends up seeing like all these different moments, even from the, uh, the Briggs dream. I mean, from, <laughs> from the Briggs scene before, well, you know, like Cooper listening to Briggs, tell him about the radio waves messages, you know, it's, it's all there, um, jumbled together. It, you know, it, it's previous footage, and they, it, it's now juxtaposed in this dreamlike way so that we can associate new meaning. And, um, you know, then it gets followed up by phone call at the end. So, like, the structure is actually exactly like, um, like the one from episode two that Lynch did where we were introduced to the Red Room dream. So, um, you know, even, even with the phone call at the end, I mean, although uh, Cooper's interrupted here rather than he um, initiating the phone call um, at the, uh, the end of episode two, <clears throat> but either way, it's, um, it's Lynch language for Cooper is getting a lot of information here that he knows what to do with. So yeah, looking into it specifically, Cooper's arm is over his eyes. The giant's arm is waving. Um, but there's the sound of the ceiling fan over all of this from this point. Um, and, you know, the ceiling fan is there making white noise to hide things that are happening. So, um, you know, are we able to see the things that are happening when a ceiling fan is on? Or is Cooper being masked at this point too? I think it's possibly a little bit of both. Um, we see Ronette fighting in her bed, um, or, you know, thrashing in her bed. Um, then we get a blurry Bob approaching, like he's way out of focus, but you, we can tell it's him, you know, it's, he, he's got that blue of his jacket, uh, really bright. And then, you know, there's the, the white, uh, peach colored, uh, face at that point. Um, and, um, then we we get an image of um of cooper standing he's in his blue pajamas listening to briggs and um it it flashes out with white but not before there's these little blue flecks down at the bottom of the um of the screen and it almost looks like the the blue tv static that we get in fire walk with me so that's an interesting touch um we have the giant saying the owls are not what they seem. Um, you know, the giant is saying that here. And then we get Briggs saying it in a little bit. Um, when that image of uh, Cooper listening to Briggs is all flashed in white, but it's like held white. So it's like sustained in that color, in that monochromatic kind of white flash. Um, 
And while it's being held like that, it's got the electricity uh, sizzle, kind of like how we hear at the end of, um, you know, the the Lynch Frost Productions uh, blast at the very end of every episode. Um, that that thing that'll like shock you into like, whoa, I'm paying attention. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of noise is going on behind um, the the frozen in place Cooper. Then we see an image of the giant looking down on Cooper and the lights, uh, the, the chandelier light is right next to his head. And um, there's a little bit of that blue static at the bottom of, of that frame, too, uh, right before it switches shots. Um, then we see the um, Bob at the bed shot that we see in episode one um, that Sarah notices during a, when she's hugging Donna. Um we see that Bob shot, except there's an owl superimposed on his face and the owl's eyes are at his forehead level. So it's almost like, you know, his, uh, the owl is almost the third eye of these supernatural creatures. And, um, per essential wrapped in plastic by John Thorne, uh, we've got Don Davis quoted saying the owls were a representation of greater power. It was through the owls in the in those woods that these entities, be they forces for good or ill, communicated with us and affected our lives. Not that they themselves were the beings, but that they were the tools of those forces. So it kind of gives an idea of like how possession could feel in this universe based on, you know, one of the more spiritually thinking guys who's, uh, you know, I mean, Don Davis has a lot of cool energy like that. And, uh, I'm glad they kind of imbued his character that way too, that, you know, he's this wise soul that like, you know, can, can feel these, um, deeper connections like that. <clears throat> and, you know, it's not canon what he said, but I mean, it sure rhymes well with everything that we see. Oh, uh, then there's a there's another white flash, and then it goes to Sarah on the stairs with the fan, and it almost feels like you know the the Laurel, like the 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 slowed down voice of hers. Um, it seems like it's even more jumbled up than usual. Like you know her her words are more obscured, um, and then that transitions into a a darkness where Bob is actually coming closer and now he's in focus and now he's like doing this crazy laughing thing. Um, he's not all the way to Cooper yet, but he's, um, he's definitely a full presence at this point. And, um, he seems to know something or he seems to be ready to do something. Um, and then this is where we get interrupted by the phone call. So, Cooper's in bed. He's um he's lit with daytime lighting now, you know, arm over his eyes and everything. And um we switch over to the other side of the phone call, which is Audrey in front of red curtains, so she kind of like thematically is still connected to the dream space that Cooper knows. Um and she's dressed in her schoolgirl uh style um instead of any of the uh in, instead of any of the lingerie or whatever. Um, and she's got tears in her eyes. So she's like dressed as a schoolgirl, crying like one. And, um, you know, she asks Cooper, why aren't you here? You know, as if he did get the note and as if he was there a few episodes ago for her rather than his undercover mission. Um, that, that 
phrase that Emery said about, you know, Laura, just like you, that seems to really have hit home here. And, um, you know, she's herself again. She understands finally the danger that she's in. And, um, you know, she's also under a fear influence because she's stuck in this danger and she doesn't know how to get out. Um, and, you know, Cooper, um, Cooper notices the schoolgirl thing and says, Audrey, this is no time for schoolgirl games. I want you home now. And you know, we've got a want uh, introduced right here. Um, you know, he's not understanding where she is or her situation. Um, you know, she's she does say she's in trouble, but she'll come home. She said she saw him in a tux. So, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's enough uh, context clues to understand that, you know, she was at least at One-Eyed Jack's uh, when when he was on camera. Um, but, you know, at this point, um, Blackie hangs up the phone and, um, you know, Emery's behind her off to the left of the screen. And um, he's got this Bob-style smile and he's out of focus right then. So it's just kind of like, huh. You know, um, Audrey getting paralleled with Laura by him. And, you know, he's sort of a predator sort of personality. So, like, he gets the um, he gets the the Bob cinematography <laughs> for a minute. And, uh, yeah, you know, obviously this is the cliffhanger for next week's, like, standard plot. Um, now that Cooper's aware of Audrey's actual situation. But, you know, thematically, this is... It, it it goes like this, you know, Cooper has a dream. He's processing the information and unlocking things uh, from Briggs. But because Cooper was in the state of mind also where he won, you know, he's preoccupied and he's got, you know, the, the contents of Audrey's smile um, interrupting his want for evidence and everything. Like we don't get to see bob get even closer to the camera like you will with maddie or anything you know it's like we, we that's totally interrupted because he wants to also know where audrey is and he gets that answer while he's on the exact same frequency you know that that phone call breaks through while he's on a frequency of processing and unlocking things and getting answers and um you know, Audrey being the biggest preoccupation outside the investigation, she literally interrupts the dream. Uh, yeah, so Cooper's intuition was essentially split in two different directions, and he got what he wanted in both cases, possibly over what he needed. Now, Cooper's not the only one who is illustrating how how this lodge spaciness is... Um, is working in Twin Peaks. You know, it's, it's everywhere still. It's like weather. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's always there whether you can feel it or not. You know, it's like, it's, it's like humidity. <laughs> uh, but um, we've, got, we've got a lot of communication also illustrating how it's seen even over the people that, you know, aren't necessarily attuned to it. So, um, you know, we're on to our next question. How does communication illustrate the threshold between the physical and supernatural? So first off, we've got thresholds being the theme of the day. You know, most worthy, most noteworthy, it's with Donna at the Tremonts, which we'll talk about, and Bob and the Bob vision that Maddie has, which we'll also talk about in a bit. Um, 
But there's a lot of more mundane examples, too. You know, Cooper and Harry walk in around Ed's hospital room, yet can't sit down until they fix the chairs. You know, I mean, sure, that was a set, uh, a happy accident on the set. But, you know, it, it, it ends up being thematically attuned. You know, it's like Lynch wouldn't include it if it didn't resonate with what's already happening. Um, And, you know, what does that lead to? It's, you know, someone who has eyewitness testimony of the supernatural intruding into the world. Uh, You know, more more to say on that later. But um, we've also got Hank crossing a threshold. You know, it's like Harry, he's already in Harry's office. And, you know, he's attuned to the bad stuff anyway. So, of course, he... he, uh, traverses the barrier instead of you know asking to come in like major briggs did um and you know even harry even hangs a hat on this you know he basically tells hank i bet lucy asked you to wait outside and uh yeah so we get hank that way um and you know leo's on a threshold too um doc is talking to shelly while leo is is there i mean he's in a coma but you know there's this circle mirror right above him and i know mills and jasmine talk about that in um in one of their episodes uh from uh damn fine tv about how how that's how audrey came out in uh, part 16 into a circular mirror like that so you know it's like there's a thematic connection that like people in comas you know like they, they were wondering if audrey maybe really was in a coma that whole time um you know, it's like there's a thematic connection with mirrors and uh, being in the negative frequency. <clears throat> and, um, you know, here we got Doc Hayward being all, you know, fatherly to Shelley. And, and, and you know, that that's the guy that we all want in our corner. You know, it's like I used to give uh, Doc Hayward a huge credit for being like the good dad. You know, it's like the guy who like really will help you in a pinch and stuff like that um you know it's it's before i noticed how much of a truth barrier he was so you know it's it's interesting but you know he he does still have this positive nurturing um vibe about him and he's really helping shelly here but you know he's also letting her know that yeah i mean like when she asked you know it's like you know will he be arrested or whatever um you know he says yeah he, he he'll probably be um you know, charged and, um, you know, taken to prison or whatever. And then Shelly makes this connection that he's in a prison now. So, you know, it's, it's less metaphorical than she knows, honestly. But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you hear about, uh, Leo being in a prison, whether he's in his coma or not. Um, and then Shelly, she just, you know, later on, she talks to Bobby about how she does not want Leo back in her house but you know she's and 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 lynch you know he's 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 the director he he he's he made the scene where um you know bobby asked her to like turn the dial on the radio so like we're literally watching a frequency change to a completely different style of music and you know it's like that that bluesy kind of like you know things you dance to when you're like trying to find somebody to be with at a at a bar um so that's the kind of frequency that bobby wants out of this conversation and he says you know it's oh man get the uh get the insurance money i know this guy who um who gets you know like five thousand a week or you know something like that and um you know the 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 disability paycheck is 
what she ends up going with at the end. And, you know, it's like, oh, Bobby, I'm going to eat you up or whatever. So, like, you know, her appetite gets revved up by this bad boy telling her to do dangerous things. And, uh, you know, common sense can't live in that particular appetite anymore. And, you know, it, it'll be like that with Red in the future, too. It's like this is just Shelley's mode of interacting with Twin Peaks. I've already started to talk about nonverbal communication with like how Margaret covered up her coffee, that kind of thing. But um, I mean, there, there's a lot to be said about communication and miscommunication in this episode. But I think it's less about like people not listening to each other, but like there's these two kinds of uh, conversations going on. There's the verbal kind and there's the nonverbal kind. Um, and the the way those two kind of communications interact is where the miscommunication and uh i mean also understanding comes from the nonverbal but that's where the miscommunication also is rooted so it's like a battle between these two kinds of communications um <clears throat> and um an interesting thing is when only words are used rather than anything nonverbal that's where people don't seem to understand. You know, it's like the Horn brothers talk, talk out the whole thing about which ledger, you know, it's like they play out this scenario, then they play out that scenario and it's all in words. And eventually it just ends up leading to like, we have absolutely no idea. Let's get the marshmallows and the hickory sticks. And, um, you know, Maya McBriar over at her uh, 25YL article, deliver the message thoughts on twin peaks, episode nine. She says, in my opinion, at the core of Ben and Jerry's brotherly love seems to be a shared penchant for mischief. They also delight in each other's quirks. This scene, although brief, embodies that notion, as Ben has no reaction to Jerry's strange and possibly coked-out behavior. Instead, Ben's ready with a bag of marshmallows that just happens to keep handy at his desk. It's also impossible not to notice Ben's spotted socks, no doubt a nod to his own uniqueness, the dialogue does feel like a formulaic device that serves simply as a plot preview, but the fun nature of Ben and Jerry's relationship makes it work in an endearing way. So these are the kind of people that work only in words. You know, it's like they're the people that um, that are mischievous or like more aligned with the negative. It's like how. Um, yeah, and, and, and it it ends up being more trickster adjacent. But it also ends up being not very helpful. You know, it's like they try to use language later on to um, explain to the Icelanders what's been going on with the mill fire, et cetera, et cetera. But they find out that Leland has already used his words for it and whatnot. And, you know, words just end up causing trouble because using them alone doesn't really um, explain any of the nuance. And, you know, in this scene, uh, Leland eventually catches his eye on the Bob flyer, but that's for a little bit later in this discussion too. Um, we've got Andy pacing outside of the sheriff's department and then, you know, he comes in and then he talks about, you know, uh, whales and sperm and everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like he uses all these words to get to the point of, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, how are you pregnant essentially? And, um, you know, who is the father, that kind of thing. And then he can't get a straight answer because Lucy goes completely nonverbal with the whole thing. You know, she just wants to get that tape off his, uh, off his hair. Uh, 
But then you get Lucy getting a taste of her own medicine a little bit later on when she can't get the words out of the mystery man who called for Truman. You know, so she gets that phone call that uh, mirrors the insurance salesman scene from season three and kind of the way um, the Gerard scene went uh, last time, like where, um, you know, he was talking about shoes, except this time, um, you know, just like the insurance salesman in, um, I, I think it's part two, not part one. Um, you know, it's like she just wants to know which Truman um, the uh, the insurance salesman gets to. But because he can't say which Truman, you know, it's like she can't even call to ask if, you know, he can come in or whatnot. Um, <clears throat> you know, in this case, you know, what does it mean? Um, I know Ben Durant from uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped. He said this in his book and his podcast. You know, he, he thought this was a... a cool way to drop in a nod to the one nine hundred number that was going to be started the very next day. Um, you know, that thing played eight episodes. Um, so like all the way through the end of, I believe it's episode 16, arbitrary law. And, um, you know, like the, there's this mystery man telling everything that just happened. It's a very quick recap. And, you know, then we'd also get little skits from Andy and Lucy. Um, also kind of talking but like this mystery man would like completely interrupt them so it's probably a nod to that because i think lynch would think that was pretty fun to do um but yeah i'll just talk about lucy like not being able to get people to where they want to go until they voice it um she's essentially a junction point all by herself you know she's like a personification if, if she were a lodge uh, a lodge denizen she would be operating a phone and um like transferring people like you know the 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 um doppelcooper uh, phone call that he picks up after he's talking to jeffries and then suddenly he's outside of the dutchman's you know it's like that would be lucy's job if she were a lodge denizen <laughs> she uh you know and there there's this really drawn out scene where you know ben ben horn calls you know it's like you know she um asks if he wants to be transferred and then she asks Harry if he wants to, the transfer. Then she tells Ben how she'll transfer and who he's there with. And to Harry that she's just made the transfer. You know, nothing can be done simply in Twin Peaks. You know, it's like the, the crossing from one state to another, from one room to another, from one building to another. It all takes work. It all takes a process. And, you know, it's like the uh, the point from getting information and understanding information takes time. And I think Lynch has always kind of understood that and portrayed that with most of his weirdness. <clears throat> but, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's more than that too. Um, you know, sometimes it really is a transition from one state of reality to another state of reality. And um, we're, we're going to see that with some scenes in this episode too. Uh, when we get to the next question, which is, how is Lodge Space influencing the town of Twin Peaks? So now we're getting a little more active. When we're looking at how Lodge Space is taking a more active role in influencing the town of Twin Peaks, or, you know, the Lodge Denizens, I mean, obviously we've been talking how Andy posted a Bob Flyer, and that might have given uh, the Log Lady permission to, you know, deliver her message, or her Log's message. Um, and, you know... That helps Leland recognize Bob, and um, that also um, 
Oh, I was running to <laughs> relive the murder again, but it also verifies in person for Cooper and Harry that uh, Bob is the main suspect. Um, but it's more than just Bob, and we will be going into Bob last. But um, before that, we've got this choice scene between Donna and the Tremonts that, I mean, for years, like all I could remember was Bob climbing over the couch. And, you know, it's like that was the thing in this episode that I didn't want to take a look at. But, um, I mean, when you get down to it, the the lodge space is so few and far between that you kind of have to look at all the characters, especially the ones that only get used here and in Fire Walk With Me. And that is the Tremonts. So the look at their home in the first place, it's a white house. It has two, it has uh, two blue pillars, and the door frame is this pastel blue as well. So it's like color coded for um, you know the not the not red version of the red room. Um, you know it's it's got that bluer color, which means something different for Lynch. Um, yet on the inside, there's red curtains on both windows and. Um, you know, I don't know if Pierre being in the beige chair, not the red chair, means anything official. But, you know, based on that Andy Lucy scene in season three, uh, it probably does, too. And, uh, yeah, I mean, color coding really makes a difference for Lynch. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning of the scene, Donna is outside and she's knocking for a while. I mean, eventually she calls Mrs. Tremont by her name, but she never offers her. I mean, the the only way that I, I think the only reason why Mrs. Tremond ever says enter is because she finally says meals on wheels. So she's like stating her purpose, at least. And that was enough. And then we only see her like crack the door. We never see her actually walk through it. Um, is that on purpose? Probably because on the way out, it's the same thing. You know, as she's entering, the only thing we see is Mrs. Tremont watching her. You know, it's it's all on Tremont's face. And then, like, suddenly Donna's already there the next time we see her. It's it's almost like, you know, maybe this isn't a real state. And um, <laughs> there's, like, some kind of cloud or something. Who knows? Um, but anyway, Donna continues um, by asking permission. You know, it's like, can I put your meal here? Donna doesn't react strongly one way or the other with um, Mrs. Tremont's coughing fit, um, but she is kind of jarred when her when Tremont's grandson says something. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, we we have Donna's entrance, so she's not thrown immediately, and then um, there's this framing of the magic trick. Um, the the grandson says sometimes things can happen just like that. So there's no context this time. It's just a statement. Um, you know, Donna's left wondering what it means. And then we get, um, you know, it's it's basically, a, it, it's almost like a word cycle with, with her, with, with his grandmother. Um, she says, creamed corn, do you see creamed corn on that plate? And then, um, you know, Donna says, yes, and it's one third of the plate. Um, so it's almost like, um, yeah, I mean, if if we're representing realities here, that's representing the negative side. And then one other thing is representing the positive side of the dream. And then the third part of it is the reality where you um, where you use one of those to kind of interpret how you're going through the world. So it's really got a time loop vibe here. Um, 
you know, the, the way things happen in the future. Is it future or is it past? I mean, it's got that sort of thing because like there's, um, there's this answer that Tremont gives, you know, the, um, I requested no cream corn. So it's a recontextualized thing. It's like, we, we now have given you another bit of information. Let's, um, let's restart it in a way. I, I don't think it's actually a time loop, but I mean, it's definitely Lodgy. Um, you know, so, so Mrs. Tremont says, I requested no cream corn. And then she says, do you see cream corn on that plate again? Second time. And, um, this time that missing third of cream corn is, is just gone. And then, you know, just like that now makes a lot more sense from the grandson. So it's, um, it, it's like that metaphor I have with the golden shovels, you know, it's like, you've got to have two coats and then you can understand, or, you know, it's like you say something twice and then it can happen. So, you know, it's like, uh, do you see cream corn on this plate? Uh, first time it didn't work. Second time it did. And, you know, then you kind of understand what's happening. And, uh, Donna looks over and there's cream corn in the grandson's hands. And then when she verifies over at the plate, there's still no cream corn on the plate, but then when she looks back, there's no more corn in the grandson's hands either. And, um, yeah. So like, is Donna officially tuned to being able to believe that these people are whatever they want Donna to see her, see them as, um, yeah, I don't know, but, um, Mrs. Tremont at this point says, my grandson is studying magic. So it's like, there's further context for how it could have happened. But is that true? You know, is that another test of some kind? You know, I mean, Donna smiles at her, but for safety, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when she, when she looks over at Pierre again, you know, there's absolutely no smile. She's wary of him. Um. <clears throat> Okay, so now the magic trick is over, and it probably gets back into the normal dialogue from this scene that Peyton wrote. Um, <clears throat> Mrs. Tremont asks Donna, who are you? And that kind of reminds me of, you know, it's like, who are you? And then who are you really? You know, it's like um, Tremont doesn't ask her twice, so she still doesn't really get an answer, I believe. And, you know, Donna, I don't know if this is smart or if this is just her being tentative, but she says, I'm taking over Laura Palmer's place on the Meals on Wheels. So she's saying, I'm a Laura stand-in rather than I am Donna Hayward. Um, you know, it's like no name, just her function through this. And um, then Donna asks a follow-up question. Did you know her well? And uh, Tremont actually answers her, and she says no. And um, at this point, we get, you know, we look over at Pierre again, and um, his eyes are moving, but, you know, it's almost like they're just moving because he's processing something, but he's not going to share it. And this scene absolutely kills me for so many different reasons. Um, Donna is being invited into the supernatural here, you know? I mean, she she could have been, like, instead of, like, being written to try to find out, you know, who her father is or some storyline that, you know, the writers might have just been shoehorning. Um, wouldn't it have been interesting to have her like being visited by the Tremonts one more time um, 
after Bob escapes. And, um, you know, like maybe she ends up getting clues for that part of the storyline again. And like she becomes more relevant to the Wyndham Earl thing because of the lodges. You know, for, I mean, from a writing standpoint, I can, <clears throat> excuse me, from a writing standpoint, I consider that the biggest misstep of, um, of the the back half of season two and when you know she and ronette are just shoved completely away from all this but um could also be just in this scene that you know the the reason why that at least donna couldn't be connected to to anything else because i mean this is probably like a fairy contract right here you know it's like she's not you know, she's not eating the food and she's not telling them her name. You know, it's like it's like what Lucy says in here with that that junction point scene, as I called it. You know, it's like, you know, Donna, we can't transfer you into the lodge space if you don't tell us your name. <laughs> like, I, I think I, I think Lynch is hanging a hat on that, like pretty blatantly if you're if you're looking for it. And I mean, honestly, the food is another thing because, you know, Donna doesn't eat their food. She actually brings the food. You know, she's she's disengaged. But like now, in a way, the Tremonts are sort of indebted to her because they're going to eat that food. But yeah, Donna gets her answer that they don't really know Laura. So she starts to disengage and she'll say, OK, Mrs. Tremont, I'll be back tomorrow to pick this up and bring you your lunch. You know, so so in a way, she's being like a reverse talisman. You know, it's like I've, I've got this uh, this concept going on that uh, the lodge space denizens are essentially um, all talismans for one particular aspect of of, you know, being human. And uh, in this case, um Donna is a talisman for the lodge space people of a food bringer. And uh, Tremont's response um, to Donna from that point is, they used to bring me hospital food. Imagine that. So are we visualizing it? Um, but, you know, again, there's this combination of hospital food and enormous food. So, you know, you know, Donna just brought food made with love and, um, it used to be that Tremont was eating this not healthy stuff, just made in an assembly line kind of way. And, you know, on the way out, um, like when, when Donna's actually trying to leave, Tremont calls her back. But all she can do is call her young lady. So, you know, physical descriptors only, please. <laughs> you know, she, she tells Donna, you might ask Mr. Smith next door. He was Laura's friend. So she actually answers Donna's question about, did you know her? You know, maybe maybe it's because of the food offering. But there's also this other way that, you know, it's like, you know, we made it through the magic trip. We the magic trick. We had we had our you know discussion establishing the terms that we're permitted to say. And now that that's over now, um, maybe Tremont's just, you know, doing that thing, you know, like, oh, one more thing. There's a, a hungry horse at Leo's house or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> or there's a clue at Leo's house. You know, it's like after the after the stuff is established, then you can do like one more helpful bit that isn't part of the permission or not. But right after right after Mrs. Tremont brings up Harold, um, Pierre says, Je unem solitaire or, you know, like however however he pronounces it. I did it more the Andy way. Whoops. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, is this, um, is this the grandson reacting to Harold's ending kind of the same way that Matt, Maddie saw the bloody carpet? Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, whatever, whatever that meant, 
there's also an explanation of Harold's, you know, terms and boundaries by Mrs. Tremont. She says, Mr. Smith does not leave his house. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of, um, you know, a helpful rules of engagement kind of thing right there. So, um, I sort of said it, but when Donna leaves, she does so while we watch Tremont, uh, Mrs. Tremont and her grandson looking at each other. So again, we're watching the Tremonts reacting to each other rather than watching Donna leave the house. You know, it's like the only thing we see is when she's outside again, she's closing the door. As far as details up to Harold's apartment, you know, there's barely any distance between the Tremonts and Harold's place. So... <clears throat> that could be, you know, why they actually know so much about Harold. But yeah, what what Donna does here is, she, you know, she's knocking. She's saying hello and knocking a lot and no one's approaching the door. So Donna actually writes a note. But while this is happening, we go back inside the Tremonts one more time. So yeah, seeing them inside their apartment again without Donna kind of implies that they exist, whether they're observed or not. And, um, you know, when Pierre says, seemed like a nice girl, you know, it's like, do they know that um, Donna has a bad fate coming up? I mean, you know, she doesn't exactly die. I mean, she almost does with Bob. So who knows? Maybe they are um, thinking about it that way. But um, it's also likely that, you know, maybe they'll never see her again. And, you know, because she didn't, she didn't attach to their frequency. You know, she didn't, um, she didn't do any of the things you're supposed to do if you want to get stuck in a lodge space. So, yeah, I mean, that could just be his polite way of saying goodbye. But, yeah, while that's happening, Donna's writing a note. Um, and on that, I'm assuming that Donna writes her name and number. So, unlike she is with the Tremonts, she totally attaches to Harold. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, he's not exactly lodge space, but, you know, that's how you're supposed to do it to get connected with people. And, you know, later on it happens. And, you know, we see him look through the blinds and Donna notices him looking through the blinds. And um, who knows, maybe that eye contact is another thing that um, allows him to call later. Right around the time Bob's getting stalked by, I mean, uh, Maddie's getting stalked by Bob. But we're not going to go right into that scene because there are a few other places before that where we where we see Bob in this episode. And that means it's time to look into the big question. When and how is Bob making himself be seen? Okay, so in that first scene, we've got Cooper and Albert talking to each other. You know, Cooper says, we're going to show the picture of Bob to Ronette. And um, Albert says, has anyone seen Bob on Earth in the last few weeks? So, you know, we're establishing right off the bat that he's not exactly connected outside of the sketch. And then we're on to Ronette. And now I know last episode I was wondering if um, if Bob running through that hospital hallway in, in that vision that Ronette was having or in that nightmare um, was when she gets attacked and there's the 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 uh, letter underneath the fingernail thing. Um, obviously, that's going to end up being next episode rather than this one. So that was more of a nightmare than it was anything else. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's, uh, you know, prognostication again. But what we do get with Ronette is she's nonverbal here. You know, she's um, she's staring straight ahead. I mean, she's obviously upset. And um, when, uh, <laughs> when Harry and... Um, and Cooper are adjusting the chairs and everything. They're apologizing to her. So, you know, it's like they're respecting her space and her time. And, you know, they're like, you know, sorry, Ronette. You know, it's just taking time. But, uh, 
all she can do at this point is answering with blinks anyway. <clears throat> and um, Cooper gives her a very specific question. Is this the man who hurt you? And, um, you know, she shakes her head no for Leo. I mean, she should be able to recognize him a little bit better. But, you know, based on the exact question, yeah, all she needs to do is shake her head and, you know, move forward. But then, um, you know, the Bob sketch is actually kind of blurry and she actually has to line up the sketch with her hand. You know, she reaches with her hand, grabs it and then like puts it more into focus. So she actively, um, you know, she actively works to see this picture. And, um, you know, she's still not directly answering anything. You know, she doesn't say yes, but she does with every action that she's uh, that she has. You know, she convulses. She, I mean, she's like uh, attacking with her arms. You know, she's defending herself essentially. You know, Phoebe Augustine at the time um, in uh, in reflections with uh, the the book by Brad Dukes, she says that uh, Lynch felt bad about her getting bruised during the filming, so he actually put a stick of gum on top of the camera, and he said he he uh, he said that she could have it when they were done. You know, like I I don't know exactly <laughs> how cool that is officially, but you know, she says that's the thing she remembers every time she chews gum. But yeah, she does do a good job with this scene. You know, she's like, tra, tra, tra. You know, it's like some people hear her say train. Some people just hear and try to say train. Um, I'm in the camp where she's like not really enunciating it at all. And uh, Cooper, Cooper catches on to what's happening. And, um, you know, he, he, he straight out asks her, are you in the train car? So like he knows that, you know, she's having a memory of it essentially, but you know, he knows that she's there, you know, and it, it sort of feels like it at least rhymes with the question is where have you gone? So like trauma brings you back there, even if you're not physically there. And, um, yeah, I mean, the light gets smashed in this point too. So, you know, the, the source of light that could be shining on her just isn't there. And she's more attuned to the darkness, literally. Now, once this is verified, it's not said anywhere, but, you know, the, the Bob Flyer starts going up everywhere because it's been verified that Ronette knows Bob and knows that Bob was an attacker. So we get Andy putting up the flyer in the double R and we get Leland seeing that, you know, do you know this man flyer when he's talking to the horns? And what's happening when he sees that flyer is... um you know, the horns are basically telling Leland, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to give you a job that you can actually handle that isn't going to make a mess out of everything. And um, he's, he, if, if anything, he's half listening to Ben at this point because he's staring at that, that flyer. And then he moves slowly towards it. And then um, eventually he gets over there. But yeah, I mean, all the way through Ben and, and Jerry just <laughs> not even noticing what he's doing. And eventually Leland holds this sketch up towards his face, almost like it's a mirror. And, you know, he's like actively focusing on it, just like Ronette did. So, you know, it's like you've got to you've got to line it up with your eyesight to attune properly. Like there's a transition between getting and absorbing the information. You know, Leland points at it and says, I know him. And now the horns realize that he's on this different track. Um you know, that we get the information. My grandfather's summer house on Pearl Lakes. He lived right next door. So is it one of those things like how we, ju we just saw the Tremonts living right next door to Harold? So, I mean, does Lodge Space live next door to people? Or, um, you know, how, how Bob lived 
the next room over from Laura. Uh, um, you know, e- either way, yeah, I mean, how, however loud spacey you want to get with that, um, it's signs of a cycle of abuse. And who knows? I mean, maybe maybe Leland's trauma was a strong enough sender that this man who imprinted on him, um, you know, it's like that's who Leland sees whenever he's uh, feeling that sort of way, too. And, um, you know, Bob could be a talisman of Leland's um, issues. And, you know, because it's Twin Peaks, it projects physically out that way. And maybe that's how the shape happened. But yeah, so we get more creepy information from Leland. It, I was just a little boy, but I know him. I have to tell the sheriff about this right away. But, you know, from from a TV standpoint, of course, it makes sense to thread this now and then make that happen as a story beat in the next episode because you can only push storylines so far ahead. But what that ends up doing to the actual chronology is Leland goes missing for quite some time, like almost an entire day. So, I mean, what happened? I mean, probably Bob, honestly. Um, I mean, one thing he definitely does is he plants the nails under Ronette's fingers sometime overnight. So, uh, yeah, or possibly the next morning before he goes to the sheriff's department. But, yeah, how do the horns react to all that? They don't react like it's Lodge Spacey, that's for sure. You know, what what Horn does is he reacts, Ben Horn reacts to it in a way that, like, you know, like, this is... This is what I feel. This is what I want, but not what I need. So, like, I think he's being facetious here. He says, Jerry, please kill Leland. So, um, you know, then, then you know, Jerry hangs a hat on the dreaminess of the whole thing and says, is this real, Ben, or some strange and twisted dream? And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just like everything else with Twin Peaks. Let's do both. It's the, it's real and a strange and twisted dream all at the same time interacting with each other. Now, Bob pretty much hangs back for the rest of the episode, except for, of course, um, right after Just You gets played. Now, when we go into this scene, there's an establishing shot where we have the Hayward's house with James's bike out front. And uh, it's not raining at all, so there's no water invoking anything. Um, but yeah, like it, they start out with James saying that was really good. Let's try it again. So this is the second time this song is being done, but I mean, you know, space concerns, you can only play a song like that once. Um, otherwise you're hogging up too much of the episode. Um, so, so Lynch has to put a point of focus that, you know, this is the second time this is important. Um, and then there's this blatantly red lamp in the scene, too. So, you know, it's like, is that part of the frequency? Yeah, probably, based on Lynch. And we know he loves his lamps. Now, we got we got this song that James has. I mean, it it seems like he wrote it, you know, for Laura, before Donna, and before Maddie. Yeah, like, he's bringing it out because that's just a fun thing the kids do. Like I said earlier, the, the, the Rick Nelson, or the Ricky Nelson thing, um, on Ozzy and Harriet, you know, it's like that sort of thing. But, you know, it's also uh, music bringing in energy. You know, that's the other thing that Lynch does. You know, it's like, sure, I mean, it's nostalgic, and the way he puts it in there is this way, but sound design will invoke things. And, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, this song is about two people, just you and I, but three people are singing. So, you know, one of them by the end of this is going to feel left out. You know, it's like they're, um, 
you know, one of them is going to feel absent, like they're not really there. And this song is for others. But in this case, um, you know, Donna feels like she's not really there. And then Maddie feels like she's not really there after. So it's like they, they take turns being the absent one. And the song cycles through twice. You know, the, the, it cycles through its form twice. Yeah, you know, we've got Donna making eyes at James almost right away. Like, you know, she she's she's staring at James essentially, you know, hoping that he looks back. And you know, eventually, toward the end of that first cycle, uh, he does look back near the end. But you know, then he looks right back down to you know his guitar or the words or you know whatever. He's focused more on the song. Um, and then we got the second time it cycles through the song um, where, you know, we get Maddie starting to look at James. And then, you know, she just barely starts doing it. And James obviously is looking back and, you know, it's like they are locked. They are together on this one. And, you know, because Donna's attuned to James at this point, she notices this happening. And, um, you know, right before right before the song almost makes it to the end of the second cycle, she just runs off. You know, she stops, she runs away. And um, I mean, you <laughs> you can really tell in this episode that she wasn't wearing the sunglasses today anywhere because she doesn't have that, you know, crime noir thing that um she had last episode. She doesn't have that that um sexy confidence or whatever you know it's like it really was a mask last episode um this time we've got you know a desperate scared and needy donna you know it's like she um you know when when james follows her out of the room to you know check on her you know she starts kissing him frantically and a lot you know it's like she she's um trying to force a connection between those two and um you know, Maddie can hear them kissing from another room. You know, it's like um, all, all we can see is like her, like hugging herself, you know, just like she she seems to feel, I, you know, whether whether it's guilty or just sadness or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, man, I just did something here and, you know, threw a wrench in something. Um, you know, it's like she she's she's on a negative uh, frequency at this point. Um so, I mean, the telephone rings here and um, Doc Hayward answers, says it's uh, Mr. Smith um, and, um, you know, Donna answers it. And, uh, you know, the, the threshold is officially crossed between Harold and Donna. And, um, you know, she does agree to meet him at this point. And um, instead of talking about it, James and Donna are just staring at each other without words. So, like, are they understanding the same thing here? I don't know. But, um you know, meanwhile, all that is happening. And, um, you know, Maddie is still sitting there in the, uh, the Hayward living room. And, you know, she's obviously still feeling, you know, maybe hurt, maybe like she did hurt somebody. So she feels guilty and, um, alone. Alone is the most important thing. You know, it's like how she saw the, she, she saw the carpet last episode after Sarah followed Leland out of the room. And now she's seeing Bob after James followed Donna out of the room. The first time we see the Hayward living room, it's a blank scene. You know, it's all like pastel pink in the back and, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a well-lit scene. And, um, you know, the, the red light that um, was right by them while they were, uh, were when they were singing the song, that red light is at the front near the camera, you know, just just a corner of it. And we go back to Maddie 
and um, then we go back to the the kitchen. I mean the uh, <laughs> the living room scene one more time. Uh, so this is the second time we're seeing it, and then we hear Bob breathing, and you know he heads in from the back. You know he he's uh, from the right to the center, and um, he is the only thing that's lit darkly in the scene. You know he and. Before the uh, before the camera cuts, he makes it halfway across the room to the couch. Yeah, and and Maddie's alarmed at this, but you know she's still frozen in place, kind of like she was when uh, Leland was singing last episode. Um, <clears throat> the third time we see that shot, Bob is scaling the couch in that super creepy predator way, and um, he ends up covering half the distance between where he was and the camera again. Her Frank Silva with Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne, um, he he essentially says that um, Lynch told him to leap over the couch. And then, you know, vaguely said, you know, like, ah, Frank, you know what to do. You know, very <laughs> and uh, Frank wasn't comfortable about leaping over it. So he, he just crawled over it the way that he did. And uh, Lynch never said cut. You know, he just said keep crawling. And um, so... So uh, Silva kept coming at the camera all the way up. And then I guess he crawled off to the side of it or something. And Lynch absolutely loved it and then asked if he could do it again, um, except this time climb right into the camera. So this thing that like scared the hell out of pretty much everybody at the time and left a huge impression on Twin Peaks fandom as a whole uh, got done in two takes uh, sort of accidentally. So... So at this point, you know, he's climbed the couch and it cuts back to Maddie by the time he's halfway between the couch and the camera. And um, it shows Maddie like, you know, she she like jolts away, but like she can't get up like she's still frozen in place. Like she she like leans back and like jumps back, but can't get on her feet. And, um, you know, the fourth time we look at or the, the third time we look at Bob, he actually does cover that last distance all the way up to the camera. And, you know, this is when she finally screams and that draws Donna and James back. And then, um, you know, it's like they're they're like hugging her and comforting, comforting her. And um, then she looks back at the dining room scene and um, it's the exact same shot as before Bob was there. So, like, it, it's like he never was. You know, it's like the Philip Jeffries scene. You know, it's like we looked at the tape. He was never here or whatever. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. As far as Bob goes, we're going to look at it in an, in one more way. There, There's that hospital scene with Ronette where he, like, charges through the hall and bites at the camera. So, like, we can actually see his teeth. <clears throat> Here, we see um, him doing the same thing with Maddie, except on, like, this incredibly slow speed. And then, um, you know, both of those, he made it to the camera, but... Um, the third person this happens to is Cooper, except that he doesn't, and Bob doesn't get all the way to the camera for Cooper. He gets really close, but then that's when the phone call happens. In Cooper's dream, you know, Bob stops, he's a few feet away and he's just laughing. Um, and yeah, I mean, Sarah saw him too, but it was just the static image of him by the bed. So that's almost more like a residual memory that the room knew or something, you know, like it, that, that was not actually Bob. That was like the, um, the, um, 
like like a, a an embedded memory of Bob. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think essentially what would have happened here is uh, with with Cooper is had Audrey not called, I bet Bob would have gotten even closer into Cooper's space as well. Um, and you know, I mean, considering considering he takes Cooper at the end of the season, uh, you know, I mean, even though the writers had no idea of that at the time, and I don't think either did Lynch, um, what we end up getting out of this is it seems like his presence only involves um, being seen by his future victims. And um, going back to Maya's article, um, she says, by the end of this episode, Dale is closer than he realizes to not only finding the killer, but also to his own demise. I've always felt that Bob wants Dale's soul trapped in the Black Lodge as part of his collection. It seemed like he seeks individuals with psychic abilities, or as the one-armed man says, the gifted and the damned. Maybe it just means... Uh, maybe it's just a means of eliminating those who can see his true face, or maybe it's because he can use those individuals to carry out his sinister plans or both. And I think that's a great note there. And we're definitely thinking alike on this. Um, you know, it's like, even though Bob never got as close to the camera as he did with Maddie and Ronette, I mean, the intent really seems like it's there. Uh, you know, slow approach, the clarity of features improving. Um, then all the way until he gets interrupted by that phone call and it broke the dream. You know, what could have happened if that dream hadn't been interrupted? You know, I mean, could it have continued on? Like, uh, you know, in, in part 18, there was that phone call in Carrie Page's apartment. You know, it's like if somebody answered that, it would have broken whatever weird reality they were in. Right. So, like, how far could this dream have gone? You know, it's like, would maybe Cooper know that Bob was after him? I don't know. It could have changed his entire way of seeing Bob and working on the case. You know, he could have known that he was a target as well. But, you know, that's all hypotheticals that you can't really prove one way or the other. But it's just, it's, it's neat that it's still there, even though, like, him being, um, inhabited by Bob in any capacity wasn't even thought of until, um, you know, okay. So this was July and then it wasn't until around March, the next March when that came up. And yet, because Twin Peaks has this internal consistency, we can still work from that and get something out of this connection before it even, um, consciously showed up. We are officially done with episode nine. So, uh, yeah, all that's left is the sign off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Retro Futurist Culture and Ruminations of Red Rum. 
and find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content of many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. If you want to be part of a next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode 10, the 11th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. I wish you the best of luck.